We're celebrating 10 years of Monocle 24 by counting down some of our favorite moments on air. In 2014, Tracy Eamon's most famous work called My Bed Went Under the Hammer. It was a work that launched the British artist in a media maelstrom, on par with that which surrounded Damien Hirst's shark. People questioned whether it was really art. While she spoke before the sale to our Robert Bound. In some levels, I said, it's like um, a ghost of my past, an old me that doesn't exist anymore. It's just like a fragment or an ether just floating by. And another part of me just... I look at it and I think, God, could I have really lived like that? Could it really be me? But I know that it was, so I do connect with it. But today I had to actually get in the bed and pull the covers up and fluff them all up. So that was kind of weird and eerie and awkward. And something did just go through me. I was thinking, wow, 16 years ago, all of this was for real. Now it is for real, but as an artwork. You get a bit of a Proustian rush, I guess, getting underneath the covers again. Is it like a diary entry? Yeah, definitely. That was a really good way of explaining it, yeah. Totally. Obviously, it's, it's been much discussed, but I suppose, would you call it a, a simple self-portrait? Or maybe not a sim- simple self-portrait, but clearly it was a, a sign of your times back then. Yeah, I think, I think a self-portrait is one of the best ways to explain, for people who can't understand it, to say a self-portrait. You can, when you look at it, you actually can wait, have a good idea of what this woman's like or, or how she lived or what she was thinking or what she was going through. A self-portrait doesn't always just have to be, you know, what you look like. It can be an imprint of who you are. It's obviously up for sale for the first time in, in a long time, for the first time since you first made it. How interested and involved can you be in, in where it ends up? I suppose maybe the temptation is to want it to be somewhere public. It must be nice having people see it here in the auction room, for example. Someone said to me, Stay, why are you doing this? And I thought that was a really good question. Why am I doing it? And I said, because I'm protecting the bed the best way I possibly can. I can't buy it. I can't bid on it. But what I can do is actually sit here and say, I really love this work of art. I still stand by it. And, you know, if I could show it in my next show, I would. And if I could stand by it in 50 years' time, I would. I love my bed I love what I've created I love what it's done for me I like the fact that it's iconic I like the fact that it's changed people's perception of art and the fact that I'm a woman and I've made a piece of seminal art that's so strong within terms of the 20th century made it in 1998 the only thing I can do is is defend it and say that I still really love it do you think you still need to defend it, like in terms of when, when pictures of it first appeared in the press? I know that it was first on sale in Japan, not that anybody, not that the, the taxi drivers who would argue that it is an art would, would, would know that. But is, is it important to you that it created that debate as well? See, you're absolutely wrong. It's the taxi drivers who say it is art. They go, I know you. You're the artist that made the bed. Is they're the people that know that it's art. You know, my mum watches quiz shows and my mum says the amount of questions that come up about, you know, which artist made the bed. It is a work of art. People refer to it as art. 20 years ago, they wouldn't have done. But now the, that perception's changed. And this is why I'm saying that's why the bed's important. So when I say defend it, I'm not trying to shout and say, this is art. We know it is. I'm trying to say that I still validate it. And I made it 16 years ago, and I still stand by it 100%, and that's all I can do. And I just wondered if you could fill us in. I know you made it in your flat. I mean, it was... I didn't make it in my flat. It kind of made me, didn't it? It made itself. It made itself. And, And where I made it was the concept of taking it out of that environment and putting it into the art gallery and saying, this is art. And that was, that was sort of the, it was the intention and, of the, and the framing of it, I guess, that was in your head. Yeah, of course it was, yeah. That's, and that is what made it art, and that's what makes it, yeah, stand by it, and that's what makes it art now and today, more so today than ever.
And at the time, it obviously created a stir. That's a nice thing to do, to rake up all these discussions that, that it obviously did as a work of art. Were you, were you surprised by that? Or did you know, like a songwriter, when they write a hit single, that everyone was going to be tapping their foot to it 20 years from now? No, obviously I didn't, because when I showed it in Japan, it was the dirty slippers that they made a fuss over. When I showed it in New York, they said, oh, it's like, you know, it's like feminist art. We've seen it all before. So when I showed it at the Tate, I wasn't expecting to have what, what did happen. I wasn't expecting that during the Turner, Turner show at all, Turner Prize. So it did come as a shock to me. And originally, for the Turner Prize, I wanted to show my beach hut. I wanted a square sculpture in the middle of the space that people could walk around and look at the drawings and I couldn't get my beach hut back from San Francisco in time so I went oh well I suppose I'll have to show the bed serendipity shines yeah definitely that bed's done me a lot of favours and uh, and that's the other thing I'm sort of like hoping to help it on its way now Next up, that time we spoke to Martha Stewart. Yes, we spoke to her back in 2014 about what she would choose for her last meal Here she is in conversation with Marcus Hippie if I were to have a last meal, which I am not planning on having any time soon, by the way, I would definitely include a, a wonderful sushi by Weizu-san of Karuma Zushi. And I've been eating um, Weizu-san's food for 19 years, and he was on 56th Street before that. So I've been going a long time. <laughs> and what do you think, what is so special about what he does? It's all about the fish and about his lack of tolerance for inferiority he is a perfectionist of the first order and my daughter and I used to be able to eat a a wardrobe of sushi we would go instead of going for clothes we would go for sushi then when he refused one day to give my daughter extra rice why well because he doesn't do that she got upset because she was very hungry, <laughs> so she she didn't want to keep going to him. But but she understands about his sushi. How often do you find time to go to his restaurant? Uh, whenever I have enough money, <laughs> it's all about the money. <laughs> it's very expensive. Is it really? Hideously expensive. I don't want to say that in front of him. Did becoming successful change the way you eat or ate? No, I, I've always eaten the same way. And I will find, if I want to eat someplace and it's expensive, I find the way to go. I can, there's, there are ways to get to places. And I found that out early on. There's always a, a boy or a man that would take me to Masa or one of those great places. <laughs> Who also loved good food. That's amazing. It's important to find the right people. I'm meeting you at one of your one of your studio kitchens. Would this be the place where you would like to have your last meal? We're here? No. I don't want to have my last meal in my in my workplace. I want to have it in my most beautiful house in Maine. And I want Weizu-san cooking there. And I want the champagne maker there too. Do we have Pichu? That's a really nice champagne. And the sake is very good sake. And what kind of a room, where exactly would it be at your home where this meal would take place? Oh, I have a beautiful, beautiful dining room that has the sun rises in the east, sets in the west, and uh, windows on three sides, and a great big raging fire in the fireplace. It's beautiful. That's a, that's a great place to have a last meal. It's heavenly. 
And then moving on to the next dish, it's not actually on the, di- on the table anymore, but I saw you. I was wondering why no one has told me that you can do that with a potato. Isn't it funny? Yeah. Just m- smashing but it that you way. See how, because fi- potatoes are total fiber inside. And you know when you cut into a baked potato, it's usually hard as a rock. When, even when it's cooked, you open it up and it's like two slabs. And it's not tasty that way when you bash it like that. And I learned that from a potato farmer um, way up in northern Maine. We went to his farm to learn all about the harvest of potatoes. And he baked me a potato. And it was like eating the best thing ever cooked that way. So is that the reason why you chose it? Because it was something... Cute? Oh, no, it's cute, but it's also delicious with caviar and creme fraiche. I mean, there's nothing more filling or more delicious than that. Especially if you have uh, unlimited sorts of caviar for your last supper. <laughs> and what happens then after after that potato and caviar? <laughs> Look at that's Kevin. He's like very happy with his potato. That's our birthday potato. It's amazing. Yeah, you can have that. When you think of your, all your travels around the world, on, and on like that very much. when you think of the most memorable experiences with food, can you name one or two? You always remember, like, the best date you had with the best meal. And uh, that was at Lutes, actually, the old Lutes in New York. And that was a very fun, very fun meal and a very fun uh, date and a very fun evening. We had duck. I remember having the most delicious duck, Bigarard, with dark cherries. And I think something lemon, like a lemon souffle for dessert. It was, it was delicious. And I, I take it it was a good date because yeah, you remember it. was a very good date. Yeah, that was a very good date. That was a fun date. <laughs> when you travel around the world, what kind of restaurants do you like? Are there some characteristics to places? Well, we look really hard for restaurants and we do a lot of thinking about it before we uh, go to a city. And we have quite a network of friends and, and, um, and colleagues all over the place that, that help us find the good places to eat. And yet not every time is successful. Can you give me examples, recent examples, when you actually would have found something or seen something that would have been particularly inspirational? Yeah, there's a little bakery on 10th Street called Chickalicious. She makes delicious pastries. So I went down to visit her, and we got very inspired. I wanted to see how she made her... You know, there's a thing called the cronut now, a big rage of cronut from uh, Dominique Ancel. Well, he his is horizontal. Hers uses a puff pastry in a vertical ring. And you find these things out just by watching and looking. She doesn't tell you that. Can you name people you would have learned something from recently in terms of, say, baking, cooking, food? Oh, yeah, well, um, the, the baker at Chickalicious, for one, from Dominique Ancel, another, from um, the... Oh, there's a very fine Japanese chef called um, Abe, Chef Abe at N Brasserie. That's another place in New York for Japanese cooked food that is delicious. And he makes uh, amazing uh, collars of fish and bones of fish that I love. I, I, like, I like things like bones and, and collars. I love listening to the way you describe food and what inspires you about food. Do you ever find food boring? Oh, yeah. Yeah, bad food. Very boring. And I think it's unnecessary. But there's a lot of bad food. And uh, the other day I taught a class in Atlantic City, a delicious breakfast. We, we taught a, a popover, a Gruyere popover filled with homemade creamed spinach and a, um, a fried egg 
and really good bacon. And I made my plate. It was so pretty. And then the hotel that was helping us, the chef decided he would put a garnish of a strawberry on an orange slice on a piece of lettuce. And that's just not, that's boring to me. It's a dessert time now. What do we have over here? Oh, this is um, our dessert. Here, move that. We have hot fudge, which should be in a little hot pot, but and cold ice cream and a salty peanut brittle. So this is the hot fudge. And if the hot fudge doesn't solidify when it hits the ice cream, it's not hot fudge. And you need a lot of hot fudge. Everybody skimps on, either skimps on the hot fudge or uses like Hershey's syrup, which is not hot fudge. So that's enough hot fudge. And then I sort of like it with a dollop of whipped cream. And this is heavy cream. It's just dolloped on like that. And a piece of salty peanut brittle. That's so easy again. Look how good that looks. Doesn't it look good? You're licking your lips. I am. I am. I noticed that. Next up, we'll hear from Luis Fanon, the co-founder and CEO of Duolingo, the top-rated education app which teaches more than 35 languages to millions of people right around the world for free. I caught up with Luis for The Entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, we're spending we're spending a lot of effort on, on improving how well we teach, and in particular in using the data from our users to improve how well we teach. We literally have almost a billion exercises per day are solved by people who use Duolingo. So we can learn a lot about how, how they're learning, and we run a lot of tests. Of, and, and the way I like to explain it is, you know, in the past, if you were a teacher and you wanted to improve how well you taught or if you wanted to improve education, what would happen is you would teach your semester-long class and, you know, maybe you got to a topic that was like adjectives. And then you wondered at the end of the semester, oh, could I have done adjectives a little better? What you do is, what you did is you, okay, you maybe change it a little bit and try something different next semester. You know, you only had maybe 50 students. You couldn't quite tell whether that was a little better or worse. Sometimes you could tell, but sometimes you couldn't. So in the best case scenario, one semester later, you had something better. But many times you just had to take several semesters to actually improve. And so it took you years to improve how well you taught. Whereas now we can literally improve how well we teach within a few days. Because, Mm -hmm. for example, if we want to know whether we should teach adjectives before plurals or plurals before adjectives, we just do a test um, with the next 50,000 people that sign up. It takes about six hours to get 50,000 new users on Duolingo. Um, to half of them at random, we teach them plurals before adjectives. To the other half, we teach them adjectives before plurals. And then we measure which ones learn better. Mm. And then once and for all, we know for our users which method is better. So Duolingo is literally getting better every week um, because we're doing a lot of big data experiments with our users. Yeah. Almost like the, the recapture of old, digitizing the, the archives of the New York Times. Now you're, you're improving your own service and, and, and having it there for everyone to, to better their, their education. The other thing about this is it's helping to revive some some languages people fear may be lost. Is that right? I, I was staggered by the figure that, that we published in the magazine about how many people are learning Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is over a million people are learning Irish. Um, Irish is a really good example of, of... So we have, you know, on Duolingo, we teach all the big languages. I mean, we teach English, Spanish, German, French, uh, Mandarin. Um, but we also teach some smaller ones, Irish being one of them. Uh, Irish has 94,000 native speakers, yet we have over a million people learning it on Duolingo. So we can actually multiply the number of speakers by a factor of 10. We have a few others that are smaller. We have Navajo, we have Hawaiian, we're about to add Scottish Gaelic, Guarani from South America. We also have constructed languages. We have Klingon from Star Trek. (laughs) 
<laughs> we have High Valyrian from Game of Thrones. Interesting tidbit. I don't know if you want to say it's sad or funny or whatever, but uh, there are more people learning uh, High Valyrian on Duolingo than there are people learning Irish. So this is this is happening. Yeah. Well, at least they're they're testing their brains. They're learning something. Yes, so. yes. I mean, that's one of the things. I mean, yeah. learning any language actually helps your brain. Yeah. So that's interesting. Although I personally would say it's probably better to learn something that's going to at least be useful if you yeah. ever go to Ireland, for yeah. example. Tell me about uh, the next project in literacy uh, and, and what you're working on there. Yeah, we're working on a literacy app. The idea is to... You know, it's to teach you a language, but it's basically your own language uh, to, to read and write in your own language. We have a finished version of a very beta app that we're testing in one small market. And, you know, my guess is that we're going to be testing it for a few more months. And then at some point it'll be, you know, launched globally. Uh, the idea is really to teach people how to read and write, mainly reading, though. The reason we're working on it is this is it's an amazing thing. There are a billion adults in the world that don't know how to read and write. And, you know, the majority of these people are in, in developing countries. But even in developed countries, I mean, for example, in the in the UK, one in five children who graduate primary school don't have the required reading level. In the US, it's, it's 15% of the people who graduate high school have a reading level of something that's called below basic. These people are functionally functionally illiterate. That's 15% of the people who graduate high school in the United States. We should be able to do better than that. We think that making a very compelling and habit-forming app will help with this mm. and make a real dent. So that's, that's what we're working on. You obviously notice the impact of what the app is doing around the world. Mm-hmm. How, what does that do for you personally? I imagine it's it's a great co- company to work for because, you know, you are having such a, a great impact around the world. But what about you? How are you enjoying that journey? Oh, I love it. It's what keeps me going. It's what keeps everybody in the in the company going. And by the way, everybody in the company is very mission-driven. I, I was joking earlier today. Somebody was asking me, you know, what would happen if you start charging for Duolingo? And I said, easily half of our employees would quit. Everybody that works there is really there for the mission. And we feel great. I mean, we literally every day we see either tweets or somebody emails us or just we come across stories of people's lives who have changed, uh, people's lives that, that have gotten better because they were able to get a better job, uh, go to study, you know, in, in, in like the U.S. or the U.K. because of this. And so, yeah, we feel really great about that. For a young guy that came to the U.S. to study in computer science, you're interested in, in gaming and computers growing up to, to now running this company. And, and I believe you were courted by Bill Gates and you've met President Obama. This is a journey I, you probably couldn't have imagined. How do you move forward uh, every day and, and sort of look towards the next thing? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I, I agree. I, I couldn't have imagined this. I'm I'm always trying to do something bigger and bigger. But the main thing that, that drives me is impact. I mean, this is why I want to work on this uh, literacy app. I really think we can have a real impact in, in world uh, illiteracy. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, at, at this point, you know, I'm sort of spoiled. Everything that, that I do in order to keep me interested has to touch millions, if not hundreds of millions of people. Uh, otherwise, it's just kind of not big enough impact, which is a blessing and a curse, but uh, it is how it is. What's uh, Other than uh, the literacy app, what is the next step for the company? Where do you really go from here? I mean, is it 
spending time on, on moving into new markets? Or, or where do you really take Duolingo? Yeah, we're doing a few things. Well, I mean, as a company itself, the goal is, is to be a publicly traded company. I don't know when we'll when that'll happen because it's it's hard to predict. It depends on on how the stock market does, but I believe that we will be ready to be a public company in about eighteen months. Um, we'll have all all the required things to be a public company in about eighteen months. So that, so I'm working a lot on that. In terms of new markets, China is a big focus for us. It's the like I said a few times, it's the only country where we don't do super well. It's hard to do well in China for a foreign app. If you look at the top one hundred apps in China. I think there's only two or three that are not made in China. We would like to be one of those. So we're we're working, we're growing very rapidly in China, but we're still not mm. not there yet. So that's a that's a big focus for us. And another big focus for us is just teaching more efficiently. I mean, we're spending a lot of effort to be able to really teach more efficiently, teach faster. So yeah, those are those are some of the things we're working on. Does it feel like a, a competitive time? I mean, you're up fighting for talent, I imagine, and keeping people around. Does, does that concern you or is that just part of it? You know, it's I've seen a pretty major shift. I would say, I don't know, five years ago-ish, tech was tech was not evil. <laughs> uh, it was They were the darlings of, of everybody and, and, you know, Wall Street was evil. Wall Street, oh, Wall Street's evil. The tech is nice. We're starting to see a pretty big shift. You know, the way I see it is people who graduate out of the university in the United States, if you look at where the top graduates are going, you know, 10 years ago, they were mostly going to Google. That is less so today. I think a lot of people are going to sometimes tech companies, but sometimes other places, but they're really looking into a place that has a mission and that has a mission that, that really resonates with them. I think you're starting to see a lot of people who just think that the big tech companies are not forces of good like everybody thought they were. Uh, you know, I personally actually don't think they are that evil. I don't I don't even think they're evil. But the, you know, kind of the environment is making them out to be not such great places. So that's actually benefiting us. Uh, we're getting, uh, you know, we really are getting some of the top talent in the country uh, applying to for a job at Duolingo because of our mission you know, because we really want to spread education. Now, album covers can be as coveted as the discs they serve as packaging for. But what does it take to achieve iconic status? Next up, we asked that very question. What makes a good album cover? To try and find out, I took the liberty of defacing one of the most iconic album covers of all time, Abbey Road, by placing myself in it. That image of a striped zebra street crossing in North London, immortalised by John, Paul, George and Ringo, has sold tens of millions of the eponymously titled album. Abbey Road is a pop culture icon, and it's also a short walk from the office. So my name is Sia Linda. I'm from Salem, Massachusetts. Growing up, I listened to like the Beatles because of parents and so on. So I always knew of like this iconic cover. And then last night I was like, you know what, like, let me come here and, like, try to recreate this for, like, Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> if you saw that on, say, a new band's album cover, would you think it was as good as an image as people seem to think it is today? I think it would be cool because you even think of, like, artists like Solange and how she does her whole, like, aesthetically pleasing thing. I think people would so go crazy for it. Well, my name is Guadalupe and I'm from Argentina. If someone said it was not a Beatles album cover and it was just a photo, would you think it was a good image? Oh, not really. <laughs> not really. It's not an, it's an amazing photo, but it's simple, and that's what makes it so special. I'm uh, Russ Hornicle from the United States, Indiana. How does it feel to be in the same spot that the four Beatles walked across? Well, it's, it's amazing that that one shot 
can bring some like 300,000 people here, you know, a year to take the same picture. We're going to be like everybody else. We're going to get out here and get run over here and uh, get our picture taken. <laughs> so that's the view of the fan in the street. That street, anyway. But what are musicians themselves thinking? Here's visual artist and singer Rick Froberg and guitarist John Reese of San Diego's Hot Snakes. It's really important that people understand if you're doing record covers, it's not to make the best looking record cover, it's to make a record cover that makes the record look like it's going to be a good record. For example, like uh, that replacement stink record, it's just a bunch of stamps, but you pick it up and it's like, for some reason you just know it's going to be good. It's just like, it just looks like they didn't care and they just, they just did whatever. It's so dark. It's about anticipation and mystery as well. It's like I hope sure. the record is all, as good as the cover. Archer has mystery in it. And uh, loads of records that I bought that I thought looked cool sucked too, though. <laughs> Rick and John have a point. You see, album covers really are a bit of a bluff. They need to pull you in, and they are by their very nature all front. Today, record covers actually represent an uneasy duality in the music business. On one side, vinyl fans pouring over every detail of a beautifully printed gatefold sleeve. But streaming is how most of us listen today. Record art is now a postage stamp size blip, a thing that pops up when all you're trying to do is enjoy the sad songs playlist on Spotify. Julius Wiedemann is master of design for Taschen. He edited their book, Art Record Covers. And he thinks the relationship between musician and artist, sound and vision, image and fan, still runs deep. Kim Gordon, that was the leader of Sonic Youth, and we did an interview with her, which was really brilliant, because we could understand uh, her history. She started working with galleries, and she was writing about art. Then she was doing a little bit of art, but not so much. Then eventually, you know, she found a band, which was quite successful, still underground. But because she came, she had this background, she came from that field, she was always having the best artists doing the art for the records that they're mm. producing so that there was already like a, an incredible contribution uh, to music and to art with george kondo and Kanye west is quite interesting i mean they suddenly talked and then they started to work and eventually kondo produced this cover which was the devil having a sex with an angel and it was great and so on they thought you know fantastic they released and then it was banned in the u.s and then people like oh, we have to do something else. And uh, and then they produced the second one. So we were finding these pieces where the artists and the musician were working so closely and then they came up with this idea. And there was no preconception of what that should be, no censorship or anything. Eventually you release something, then people are like, oh my God, you can't do this, you can't do that. But for the artist, that was his initial idea. And that's all we wanted to have in the book as well. So we have the original one, actually, in the introduction of the book. So what ties all this together, if anything? Well, maybe it's something a bit less grandiose. Budget, deadlines, circumstances, a can-do or it'll-have-to-do approach. You see, Abbey Road was originally going to be called Everest. But when the time came to think about shooting an image for that cover, Basecamp suddenly looked a long way away. Eventually, plans were scaled down somewhat, from shooting the cover amid the awe-inspiring magnificence of the foothills of the world's highest mountain to shooting the Fab Four messing about by some traffic lights just outside the studio. And thinking a bit smarter, thriftier, weirder, has also helped create one of the most distinct covers ever made, Public Image Limited's Metal Box album from 1979. It came housed in a circular metal case, as the name implies, but it wasn't the idea of a band member at all. 
Its creation came from then-teenage London photographer Dennis Morris. Having befriended Public Image Limited's leader, former Sex Pistol John Lydon, Dennis's enthusiasm for thinking outside the box, as it were, created a record cover that's now heralded as a modern design classic. With John in around the whole punk period, it was total chaos. It was absolute chaotic. He said, um, I want to call this album Metal Box. And I said, oh, you know what? Every morning I'd pass this factory on my way to secondary school called the Metal Box Factory. I said, I must go and check them out. So I went down and saw them, you know. And it turned out they made um, film canisters, which was exactly yeah. the same size as vinyl. So I just said to your mum, should it cost to buy like a job lot, a couple of thousand? They gave me a price. And I asked her mum she would be to emboss the, the pill logo, and they gave me a price. I went to see Virgin, told them. They said, well, you know, it'd be too expensive. I said, no, no, you know, this is the price. And they said, okay, uh, it's reasonable. So we did a couple of, um, couple of thousand, I think, in limited edition, and that's how it was born. This next highlight comes from the golden age of aviation, when we caught up with a couple of pilots who had flown into one of the most notorious airports in the world, Hong Kong's old international airport. For this, we spoke to former Cathay Pacific captains Peter Bissell, now general manager of operations, and Mark Hui. We hear first from Mark. The first time I was flying the aircraft back into Kai Tak, was uh, we came in from Canton, as it was called in those days. It's now become Guangzhou. It's always with nervous and trepidation. Your first time you came down, looked at the checkerboard, turned right and landed Kai Tak. But it was also a huge uh, fulfilment of a career ambition to be able to achieve it, tinged with excitement. But I think that particular day, just the complete emotion and concentration you know, you, you just don't really appreciate what you've actually just achieved. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to You hear about it, you see it in magazine covers, but until you actually looked out the windows, basically effectively looking into high-rise apartments as you came into land, um, you didn't really appreciate it. It was a very small runway, narrow runway, you know, nestled on the corner of Hong Kong Harbour, pointed out through the Limon Gap. There was a certain uniqueness. It was just had a... A sort of a different sort of beauty about it that was really, really unique to Hong Kong. Many, many stories about it. And that Kai Tak grew and grew until it reached capacity and then we eventually had to change. And it was very busy, very challenging, but the hustle and bustle around the airport as well, it was right in the middle of the city. It was just completely different to anything else you would expect. If you ever had friends arriving in Hong Kong, you'd always say to them, get a seat on the right-hand side, because the right-hand side was the most spectacular. They, one of the things that we used to do a lot in the days before 9-11 is we'd, you know, we'd have people in the flight deck. It was even in the frequent flyer program that you could accrue enough points to actually request to sit on the flight deck for landing. We always flew with the flight deck door open. But it's interesting because I spoke to a number of people who, who, uh, who afterwards you'd be having a drink somewhere or whatever, and they'd talk about their experience, you know. And they would always say, they would say in the early part of the descent, because, you know, descent takes about half an hour, and the early part of the descent, there's not a lot going on. And it, the workload, the intensity really builds up below 10,000 feet. And people would often say to me, it was interesting watching you guys, because we were chatting away, and then we got down to 10,000 feet, and suddenly you were all concentrating on what you were doing. And that was true. You couldn't really have a conversation, apart from operational conversation, below 10,000 feet, because you were so concentrating on the approach. And people would often say they could feel that. You could feel that, that, uh, that tension 
I mean, sitting in a flight deck, it's like anything that you don't normally see, whether you sit in the front of a train or the bridge of a ship, these are places where public don't normally go. So it is fascinating, no matter where you are. But aeroplanes, I think, still have that magic about them. You know, there are so many dials and lights. You know, there's there's so much going on in an aeroplane. I think they still look pretty exciting places to be. You add to that, you know, an approach like Kitech, you know, and it adds a different level to it, I think. You're always focused on learning, but no, as, as you became more accustomed to it, it took on a completely different perspective. As you came down, the way Cathay approached the, the airport was a little bit different. We had some local knowledge. We could see Lion Rock off to the left. There was a race course. So we, we positioned ourselves. We, we cheated a little bit. We went a little bit off to the left. It gave us a, a sort of a, a longer sweeping turn to approach in through the buildings onto Kai Tak. Now we became intimately aware of uh, flying into Kai Tak. I think Kitek was just dynamic. When uh, you're referring to parking your car, which is something that every time you park between two vehicles, it's going to be pretty much the same. Every time you came to Kitek, it was going to be a little bit different. Uh, the wind directions, the turbulence, just the cloud swirling around the mountains gave completely different illusions. And uh, it was sort of the eroticism or the eroticism of uh, the whole Far East became part of coming to Kai Tak and which was the mystique of doing it. It was completely different. So every single time you flew into Kai Tak, it was different. And that was what was unique about it. The great thing about Kai Tak was that um, being a city airport, the moment you got through the airport, you were, in, you were in Hong Kong. You know, there were street vendors, there was taxis, there was noise, there was buses, there was, you know, uh, it was just straight full on as soon as you walked out. And the airfield, as you know, in order to accommodate the parking all the parking st- uh, areas went all the way you know, up into Kuntong and uh, um, you know there were bridges across the Nulla to make connect taxiways with the runway it really was in the end it was absolutely impossible to continue to operate out of there because it had simply become too small and so it, it was challenging but but never felt frightened. In fact, I always thought, thought it was a great challenge. You know, it was an approach that if you, you, you anticipated it and you managed it, and if you got a really nice landing off it as well in the right place without having to stomp on the brakes, and you know, you just felt that you'd, you, know, you were doing your job. You know, a lot of these, a lot of airfields now, we talked to one about flying and uh, how flying is managing machines. But those curved approaches, uh, Kitech and still in New York, this is where people still actually fly aeroplanes, you know. There's nowhere in the world like Kitech. Kitech was, as I said, it was our home port. We loved it, but it was always a challenge. And I think from a piloting perspective, that's the best part about it. Um, it was unique, and it's never going to be repeated again today. Back in 2016, we profiled a rather unique auction house, Summer's Place Auctions, as they put the entire collection of a Dutch National History Museum up for sale, including the skeleton of a 7-meter-tall duck-billed dinosaur called Freya. In this clip, our Yoling Gafan meets James Rylands, auctioneer and director of Summer's Place. I mean, obviously, it's quite rare to have uh, something like this as a collection, and as such, we're certainly going to make the most of it. When you say you're an auctioneer, in very, in most cases, that means that you're not auctioneering, you know, 24/7. Um, you're actually there's the real sort of thing with being an auctioneer is the preparation, the valuing, the cataloguing, the researching, the going and seeing clients. So, if you like, 
This is the culmination of many months' work on, on my part, on Rupert van der Werf's part, on Errol's part. All of us on our team, you know, have put a lot of work into this. So today it's make or break. Are you nervous? Yes, I am nervous. But it's not really nervousness because ironically the bit I hate the most is the bit just now, just before the auction starts. Once I'm up on the rostrum and I'm then totally in control, hopefully, of what's going on, then I can relax a bit and hopefully we can have some fun. And what is the code of conduct of an auctioneer when you stand up there? What, is, what are the protocols? Well, I think first the most important thing is transparency. You know, you are in essence acting as almost like a sort of conductor in an orchestra where you are ensuring that the objects you're selling fetch their true market price and that means to the highest bidder. And it involves a number of skills, I guess. Obviously it involves a lot of theatre, it involves a lot of sort of mental dexterity and it's also about engaging with your audience. That part of it has changed a lot over the years because, say, 20, 30 years ago, virtually everybody would come to the auction, so we'd probably have 300, 400 people here. Nowadays, a lot of it is done on the internet with internet bidders and with phone bidders. But what's nice about today is that I'm expecting we'll actually have a bigger crowd than we usually do, and it's much nicer selling to people who are actually seated in the room rather than anonymously either on the telephone or clicking away on their pads for the internet. Can you tell me a bit more about your background? How do you become an auctioneer? Uh, how do you become an auctioneer? Well, probably because you're unemployable doing anything else. No, um, I think my own route was I did history of art at university and then I joined Sotheby's in the late, in 1979 and then was with them for 30-something years and then Rupert van der Werf and myself bought our business, all the land here and from Sotheby's seven or eight years ago and then we set up by ourselves. And where we've been, I think, very lucky is we've established these two niche markets, the natural history and also the garden sculpture. And I think it's probably fair to say that we're the sort of market leaders in both those, those sort of sorts of in the world. Can you give me an example of, of another auction you've done that was very exceptional, very unusual, with rare, with rare collection? Oh, gosh, where do I start? Well, I'll give you an example of something that was quite interesting. Um, about 20 years ago, just after the fall of the Iron Curtain, I got phoned up by a dealer who said, I'm in a town square in Latvia, and they've got a five-ton bronze bust of, of Lenin here. Can you sell it? And I said, well, yeah, of course I can. And I just loved the idea of a communist icon being sold through an arch-capitalist system, if you like, you know, market-driven like Sotheby's. And we ended up selling it to a very senior Tory politician. So it sort of went round full circle. What kind of buyers can we expect among the audience? Who buys natural history? This really will be across the board as well. It'll be everybody from museums to private collectors. There will be the odd dealer who's um, hoping to buy things as well. What I really would like is to see some youngsters bidding, you know, people who want to start forming collections of fossils and things like that who are sort of still at school. That would give me great pleasure because we're very keen on promoting education with schools coming here and looking at, looking at the sales. And I have to tell you, that in general, those school kids ask far more intelligent questions than any of the grown-ups. <laughs> Next up, we hear an archive session track from the British singer Anna Calvey. Back in 2016, she came in and performed a set for us. Here is Suddenly. Ooh, 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 ooh. 
can't face It tastes like I'm leaving Suddenly I'm leaving all behind This next clip comes from our award-winning series, The Power of Sound. Here we hear from the legendary sound engineer Susan Rogers, who worked on many of Prince's biggest records. There have been so many moments in the studio that just light you up like a Christmas tree, where you think to yourself, I never saw that coming. And it just knocks you out. And it can be something small or it can be something amazing, um, something large. Here, here's an example. Years ago, I was working with the artist Ted Hawkins. Uh, he's, he's the late Ted Hawkins now, but I was engineering and the producer was my friend and mentor, Tony Berg. We were in the studio and we were doing the song called Biloxi. And it was, um, 
It was a cover version of an older song, and Ted Hawkins was in his 60s at this time. He had spent some time in jail. He was a big man with a big, deep voice, and he actually was from Biloxi, Mississippi, so that's why Tony wanted him to do the song. And the track was great. It was L.A.'s finest session musicians. We had Jim Keltner on drums. We had the great John Pierce on bass. We had Chris Bruce on guitar. Just this all-star team, Greg Lease on, on pedal steel. Great, great musicians. That was a fun session to do. But now we were in the studio and we're doing the vocal and Ted's on the other side of the glass. He's sitting there on his chair. Big, big man. And uh, we get to the end of the song and Tony Berg says to him, just, just, just kind of riff, just kind of ad lib. And, and, and Ted didn't know what he was talking about. And Tony said, just just repeat the line, the sky is red from off toward New Orleans. That was the tagline in the chorus. So uh, Ted says, all right, the song's playing a lot. <laughs> he got to, the, got to the coda, and Ted sings, and the sky was red from off toward New Orleans. In this voice that sounded like thunder, imagine James Earl Jones. If James Earl Jones could sing. And I instantly burst into tears. How does that happen? How does that happen when something is so great, you recognize it as being deeper than music? It taps something in you that uh, the uh, the late Joseph Campbell wrote the book, um, The Hero with a Thousand Faces on Mythology, what he would call the universal truth. It becomes the music of you. And suddenly, the world just opened up. Moments like that happen in the studio a lot. Our colleague, the producer Greg Wells, said to students once, you guys, and he's saying to the students, sitting here today, you have no idea how good good is. Good is ridiculously good. Stupid good. So good that you shiver in your tracks. You recognize, wow, uh, you don't see that every day. I think the first time I ever had an epiphany in sound itself was uh, around 1982. I was at Westlake Audio. My boyfriend was the technician there and I was visiting him. And It was a late night session and the great Mick Gazowski was in was in the, the Westlake studio and he was mixing a Billy Idol track. I think it was called Catch My Fall. And uh, John and I, the boyfriend, we, we were in the control room and Mick was very generous. He was just wrapping up his mix and he said, uh, he saw me looking at the tape machine and he had just finished the mix and he went to get a cup of coffee and he said, you can hit play if you want. And I thought, oh, it's Mick Kozowski. And it was in Westlake Audio. Westlake had the big five-way monitors up there and just some of the finest control rooms in the world. Westlake Audio and their studios, by the way, that's where Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones preferred to record. It's where they did Bad and Thriller and those records. So I was there and Mick said hit play, so I hit play. Hearing that mix come over those speakers, the fidelity was so great you get the sense that, I th remember thinking to myself, I think I can tell what color socks the drummer is wearing. That's how, how extraordinary that audio was.
Next up, we hear from twice Oscar-winning actress Sally Field, known for roles in box office hits including Forrest Gump, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Lincoln. When she spoke to Georgina Godwin for the big interview in 2018, she had just written a memoir, In Pieces. Here now is Sally Field. By the time, you know, you're ever thinking about what are you going to be when you grow up kind of thought, I think it was always an actor. I can't remember ever having the thought of, gee, I wanted to be a nurse or a fireman or a... I think being an actor was always the top of the list. But I have to honestly say that somewhere lurking, not far behind, but quickly got, you know, diminished till it was no longer visible, was the thought that I wanted to be a writer. Which, of course, you've now achieved. Yes. Yeah. Can you remember the first time you performed? Yes, I do. Very well. Very well, clearly. I was 12 years old, and I was lucky enough to have a theater arts department at my at my public junior high school or middle school or whatever you call it. It was the seventh grade. And it wasn't a stage even. It was just a classroom that all the chairs and desks were sort of pushed to the side. And we were using the front of the class. And I, I did a scene from Born Yesterday, played the Billie Holiday character, um, the brassy bombshell, which... Um, completely wrong for even in the best of case scenarios but I remember it clearly clearly and the kind of response you got from it you know I don't remember the response I got from the teacher or the class I remember the response from me I remember it so clearly that from the minute I walked on what was supposed to be the stage something struck me, a little zats of electricity, a bell rang, and the self-imposed fog that I had been living in just cleared, and I could hear myself, and I was alive. It didn't matter what anyone thought of me or what they wanted of me. For this moment, for this second, because it didn't last long, I was free and weightless. And then, of course, it went away, and then I didn't know what to put my hands and any of that sort of stuff but that exquisite feeling of being alive is what has driven me my entire life and I would say long ago before I even thought of writing this I would always say that I spent my life chasing the fireflies on the edges of my eyes because it kind of felt just electric something brightened and and came alive And that fog that you described, that's something that would descend. It was a kind of way of protecting yourself from the abuse that you were getting from your stepfather, who himself was an actor to a degree. He was a stuntman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you found a way, really, to protect yourself by just bringing down your own fog bank. Yes, the fog, the self-imposed fog, it was gradual, but it really became the way I lived my life by the time I was an adolescent. Certainly at 12, it was really beginning to be how I saw the world, very muted. There were no sharp edges or colors. And as a result, I couldn't really read a book or concentrate on schoolwork. I I almost didn't graduate because I did so poorly. But I could memorize a poem. And I would memorize the longest poem I could find. In English class, they'd say, now you memorize a poem and recite it to the class. I could do that. I could memorize dialogue. I could go on stage and become, for that instant, alive. And then I would go back into this world that I, the feelings that were overwhelming me would just be tossed out into this 
mistiness. You know, I had a sense of them, but they weren't sharp and they weren't colorful. But that fog really didn't exist all the time in my childhood. It became more strongly defined as I started to reach adolescence, where my own feelings were coming alive. And adolescence is a complicated time under the best of cases. Since I had a threatening male in the house, it was very dangerous. And a man who who you really loved. I mean, he was a, a lovely stepfather to you some of the time. Yes. But a, a huge bully in other ways. And I yes. don't just mean the abuse. I mean, all sorts of things forcing you to just work out on monkey bars or yeah. swimming and things like that. You say in the book, in fact, that it was more about your failure than your success. That's... Well, I, I, I don't know that it was, but there was a part of me that when I was about 10 or so, I started to pull part of me, not all of me. And I again, I it's taken me so long to be able to recognize that part of me was simply fragmenting, you know, because I would feel so distinctly one thing aspect here, and then there would be another aspect someplace else trying to be heard. And some voice in some piece of me started to be suspect that his driving both my brother and myself to accomplish physical feats when we were outside in the backyard, physical feats that in a lot of ways were not I wasn't capable of. His mockery wasn't about wanting me to achieve something. It was about wanting to see me fail. I sensed it. And whether that was true or not, I don't know. But as I look at it now, as I look at it now through my older eyes, as I started to look at it in my 70s, the 60s and 70s, I think he didn't even see it, but that that was the case. Lastly, for this episode, let us hear from Gregory Porter. The singer came in to perform and chatted to our Robert Bound. There will be no love that's dying here The bird that flew in through my window Simply lost his way He broke his wing I helped him heal And then she flew away Well, the death of love is everywhere But I won't let it be There will be no love that's dying here for me There will be no love that's dying here The mirror that fell from the wall was raggedy, that's all It rests up on a rusty nail before it made us fall Well, the bones of love are everywhere But I won't let it be There will be no love that's dying here for me There will be no love that's dying here For flowers in my Asian vase Is not a sign we're dead I paid for three 
a sweet old lady gave me for instead there's some doubt that's out about this love but i won't let it be there will be no love dying here for me oh dying here for me oh there will be no love that's dying here oh hey no no there will be no love that's dying here oh there will be oh my people there will be no love Dying here. Mm. The musicians that I work with, Chip Crawford on piano, mm. Aaron James on bass, Emmanuel Harold on drums, Yosuke Sato on saxophone. Uh, that's my traveling band. And, and generally with recording, I also have uh, Tavon Pennicott. I have uh, a firm idea of, of what it is that I, that I want to hear and what I, I want to be played, but I also want them to have their their own musical charisma shine through in the music. And so I may have an idea and they, they take it somewhere else. And that's cool, too, you yeah. know, because it'll take me somewhere else. And so I think that's the idea of the music to to push each other to, to different places. And, uh, and my mus- musicians uh, surely do that. Tell us about the lyrical content of the record. I read in an interview that you talked about God, love, uh-huh. protest songs. Yeah. Some of these things are explicit. Some of them are, Im- are implicit. You yeah. said to us, I think, between songs. You know, right. Well, I'm right. talking about love, but it could be money. Right, right, right. And then when I say money, I'd, am I talking about money? No. <laughs> it's like, you know, currency. Yeah. I mean, even with liquid spirit, I, I mean liquid in the monetary sense in that spirit, love, energy, and culture to be quickly accessible, unreroute the river, let the damned water be. There's some people down the way that's thirsty, so let the liquid spirit free. It's like, let this ready spirit, this ready love, this ready energy, this ready culture, let that free. And, and, and when I say unreroute, because many of the things that we love are diverted to its proper demographic. Uh-huh. And that's what I'm just saying. Let the music free. And I mean in all aspects. I mean jazz, soul music, me classical music, all of it will be palatable and, 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 and loved by many people if, if we don't stigmatize it in a way. That's, that's what I'm saying. Uh, this one is uh, about, uh, you know, you write songs when somebody breaks your heart and, and then you get a Grammy nomination for it. Yeah. 
water on the bridges. <laughs> Somebody told me, get over it It's like water under bridges that have already burned They say it gets better, it gets easier The memories start to fade And sad songs that always play you start to hate do you remember the days we used to spend? Memories so strong it keeps me from moving on. If I could go back, I'd take our worst days. Even our worst days are better than loneliness. Somebody told me, get over it It's like water under bridges that have already burned It's like water under bridges that have already burned Memory so strong it keeps me from moving on If I could go back, I'd take our worst days Even our worst days are better than loneliness Somebody told me, get over it it's like water under bridges that have already burned It's like water under bridges that have already burned It's like water under bridges that have already burned They say They say they say it's like water under bridges that have already burned. This has been a selection of some of our favorite moments on air, selected as part of the celebrations to mark 10 years of Monocle 24. Listen out for more live on Monocle 24, or do browse the selection over at monocle.com. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>